Faxi's musical podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Bax, and welcome to Baxi's Musical Podcast. If this is your first time here, welcome. It's great to have you. If you've been here before, prepare yourself, because this one is going to be really awesome. My guest today, the legendary Ja Wobble. Now, if you don't know much about Ja Wobble, let me see if I can set the table here for you. And it starts with this. When the Sex Pistols collapsed and fell apart in early 1978, there was plenty of baggage left behind. On one hand, you had a number of people that were glad to see them go, and there were also plenty of people who wanted to know what the Sex Pistols would do next. This was a band that had created a revolution of sorts, and while that revolution was surrounded by chaos and bad headlines, the Sex Pistols were, in fact, game changers. So when John Lydon quit the band in January of 1978, people were dying to know how he would recover from something like this. Was Johnny Rotten a one-trick pony, or was he something different? As it turned out, his next step was to invite former Clash guitarist Keith Levine and his childhood friend John Wardle to create something completely different and unexpected. The result was something called Public Image Limited. And in many respects, a very strong case could be made that their legacy is every bit as rich and as influential as the band that brought John Lydon into the spotlight to begin with. John Wardle would come to be known as Ja Wobble, a nickname that would be handed to him by the late Sid Vicious. Ja Wobble is significant in the sense that he not only completely transformed the electric bass, but his work on those first two Pill albums are considered to be landmark recordings and the starting point for the post-punk movement, which would lay the foundation for nearly every underground and alternative subgenre for the next 30 years. This was especially true on Pill's 1979 masterpiece, Metal Box, an extremely challenging record that many would consider to be one of the most important records ever recorded. Ja Wobble would leave Public Image soon after that and resume a solo career, which eventually led to some incredible collaborations with people like Brian Eno, Ginger Baker, Bjork, The Edge from U2, Sinead O'Connor, and the late Dolores O'Riordan from The Cranberries. The list of collaborations and accomplishments from this guy are staggering. And you can find out more by picking up a copy of his 2009 autobiography entitled Memoirs of a Geezer. Last year, he released an incredible album called Gwen Yin from Ja Wobble and Family, which he recorded with his wife and kids during COVID. He also just released an updated version of Metal Box called Metal Box Rebuilt and Dub, and it's a fascinating record. We're going to talk about all of that stuff. Plus, we talk about Public Image, the Sex Pistols, Sid Vicious, and his touring band, The Invaders of the Heart. That and a whole hell of a lot more. This is my conversation with the great Ja Wobble on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. How are you? I'm very well. Sorry, I've been so. I've been you and one other guy. I've been very flaky <laughs> with because I'm just so fucking busy, man. It's uh, you know, it's not particularly glamorous busy either, to be honest. You no, know? But, so, uh, but but busy is busy, and I'm I'm glad you took the time. That's you know, it's it's I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. So I know you've been busy because uh, <laughs> there's a lot on your plate right now is just listening to uh i, I mean i know you're, you're you're touring with the with the band the invaders of the heart but i was just listening to the the jaw wobbling family album i love that record i think it sounds so awesome and the fact that you're actually doing it with your family i mean i i can't even get my kids to mow my lawn never mind <laughs> <laughs> yeah well well you know they had their moments when they're they're teenagers, right? When they were younger, but now they're at the at the moment it could change, Mike. But both my sons don't seem to think I'm an asshole. So that's good news. Maybe they're just acting. Maybe that will change. But um, my wife as well doesn't seem to think I'm an asshole. I can't be certain. She doesn't seem to. So you know, it was a case of let's get this done now while we while we can. Yeah. So. We went in and did it and put it out, no promotion, because it was it made people said I should have maybe waited a little bit longer because it was at the time of lockdown. It was a weird time in a way to release a record like that. Yeah. I don't think necessarily a weird time, but it's done okay. And we've just re released uh, a remix of, 
of um, Dim Sum from the album on um, Dimple Discs. Yeah. It, so that's that's it's had some radio play, play here and all that, you know. I really like it. I think it's I, it's got a very sophisticated Asian sounding you know, vibe to it. But to me, it's a, it's just a beautiful song. The whole album is really is really cool. Also, like the the Wushu Demon. I thought that was a great song too. Yeah, that's it. Five four. Yeah, very straightforward. Five four, straight out of dim sum. Um, a bit of a. It's a typical jar wobble. Like he said <laughs> talking about himself in the third person. A worrying sign. That's a typical kind of segue. I love unusual segues. You know, I like them live as well. It's one of my little trademarks. You know, is this going to be one of those situations? You know, you're working with your kids. You're working with your wife. Is this going to be one of those situations where? You know, the kids are going to take over the family business. I mean, you, are they going to become like the musical Trumps or anything like that? Well, what a lovely thought. Um, um, I felt sorry for one of those kids, actually. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. But, um, you know, but anyway. Um, <laughs> now, there's, now there's, yeah, anyway, a fa- there's a family where you can point fingers and say, okay, dad's an asshole. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, I was just thinking, right, let's just move on. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll get very detracted. But, um, well, it's funny you say this. I didn't think, we, we always said, don't be professional musicians, enjoy it. But don't, obviously that's a daft thing to say because they're going to want to be. Um, but I'm, they've got a band called Tian, my sons. Mm-hmm. And, they're just, and I'm on it, so I'm working for them. And um, so they're both really into all this. I would say my older boy is really taking it all very seriously. So he's a real expert on, on, he's a bit of a musicologist. He's a very good drummer. I mean, he really is a, a little bit like Jackie Libersay. He's got mm. that kind of, yeah, you know, I mean, it's not just me. He started to, this last year or two when he's done sessions with me, the other musicians are like, what the fuck? You know, like <laughs> he's really got his own style, he uses a Tama kit, a small kit, very reduced, very accurate playing, great feels. But, He's a real expert, particularly on the music of uh, Xinjiang, like in, like in the northeast of China, uh, the Tajik music and the Uyghur music and all these scales. And he explains to me all this quite complicated stuff where some of the scales, the third note of the scale was made slightly sharp. You mm. bend the note, this kind of, you know. So he's really talks to me a lot about music and how you put music together. So I'm, I'm delighted because... My attitude this last few months with this train strikes and everything here all the time. So I've been driving him to London a lot. You know, he drives, but I've been driving and um, we've been having conversations late at night, driving back on the high, on the highway. Um, and I'm like, well, OK, you, you're really into this shit. Well, OK, yeah, it's kind of a, a very pleasant surprise, you know, that he's really good. You now, we listen to a lot of electric miles and talking about very particular ways of recording music and sonically is at that age where in your early twenties as a musician, you should be completely lost and obsessed into this world of sound, yeah. which she, which is, you know, well, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. I try to do that with, with my kids, you know, early on where they weren't just exposed to the top 40 hits of the day, but I try to expose them to all kinds of music. And I think, it, you know, that's really healthy for, for, for any kid. Especially when you, you know, you're all of a sudden you're starting to find you know connection pieces between you, your kids, and the and the same music. I'm thrilled my kids are is into music as they are. I'm sure it's got to be a, a huge source of pride for you too. Oh yeah, I'm very um, yeah I'm very happy, very proud. I got a temper that they were both good with sports when they were young. My younger son Charlie was a pro footballer for five minutes, you know, and then. <laughs> wanted music and wanted to go to university and uh, so I went to university continued to play football at university he went to King's College got a good degree so I was very happy he I think he thought I was going to be a bit upset but I was really most important thing I wanted him educated and to still love playing football and to love music you know so and the, and John my older boy Ty Ty was into um, boxing mm. you know so I was the proud parent there, but you really have to temper it and you've got to realise how not to get too involved and it's a difficult balance, you know. So with the music, funnily enough, that was never really an issue, you know. Um, I do have a point of view with them. So, I, you know, I've, I've 
you know, been very definite to them a couple of times about the uh, when they work in area and saying, right, I'm I'm your fucking bass player. I'm just a fucking bass player in this scenario. But this is what I think you should. This is what I think you should do here. And they would maybe give themselves too many choices. And I was saying to them, sometimes the importance of reducing the choices down early on. You know, building a very strong foundation. Anyway, you know, that's all gone well. And so, yeah, I'm happy, but it's I, very much it's their life, yeah. you know, um, and do with it as they will. And my attitude to check, to, they both got straight jobs. And um, John does a lot of library music and stuff. He's a good engineer. But Charlie's like working in doing, earning pretty good money, which you need to do if he lives in London. And you need to earn very good. Like if you live in Manhattan, you've got a lot of fucking money. So he's working. And my attitude is don't give up your day jobs because it's tough. Yeah. Um, and they yeah. they both see how tough it is to tour, you know, stripping down the gear afterwards for people, all this stuff, you know. And the mus- musicians at that level still have to help out the crew. You know, it's, it's a tiring world. So they're looking at that and... It's, yeah, I said, you know, try and work a situation. You're going to do gigs, but when you do gigs, try and keep it as scaled down as you can. You yeah. know, small drum kit, you know, good crew people and keep it, you know, keep it steady. But don't go on these, you know, just pick your dates, but don't give up your day jobs. It's, you know. Well, and, and you're doing that now. I mean, the Invaders of the Heart have been playing quite a lot or are about to, at least until I think October or November all around England, but then you're going to Prague and Zurich and stuff like that. But when you're coming out of the pandemic, getting back into the swing of playing live, has that been challenging over there? I mean, I know in, in the States, things are starting to open up and you're starting to see people come out for shows again. Is it is it the same thing in the in the UK right now? Yeah, the start of the year, we were very concerned because we were touring again and thought, will anybody come? You know, and it definitely had a big effect on people, but we were really surprised you know pleasantly surprised um at the first show there were some no shows people bought tickets but didn't turn up and then the um and the, but the second show ronnie scott's which showcase a special night it we had did two shows and every seat was full mm. and there were people trying to queuing trying to get in it's like a jazz club you know um quite a big jazz club and so that's it's, it's got a great reputation it's my favorite place to play that was fantastic um, and then the next night there were 70 no shows. So people that had bought tickets didn't turn up. And so we thought, right, this is okay, but yeah, a bit of a worry. And we went to the West country and, um, it was full. Hmm. And then I think every show we did then was, a, was pretty much what you'd expect to. So that was great. So we're touring again. Now we're doing a smaller in between places and then we'll tour the big cities again next year. So we've, by British standards, we're generally, with one or two exceptions, like Manchester, we haven't played since before the pandemic, a big music town. But most of the places we're doing are in between little towns. And the new thing now, of course, is um, the economic situation. People are completely beside themselves with worry. Yeah. So, yet again, it's a challenge to get people out. But we've... So far, you know, so good. We've been doing that. So you want to know the promoters are not losing money. They'll book you again. It never stops. The, the, the pressure never stops, you know. But it's a very worrying time right now, yeah. you know. And then the Queen died and um, at the uh, at, at, at last week. And so one of our shows went down because it's a civic building. So because the Queen had died, they... It's not the people running, but it's not your fault. It's just the civic building, so that closed. Wow. You know, um, so it's so we couldn't do. So that was Barrow. We've got to do that at some point in the future. I don't think that's an issue that's going to affect any more shows, but it does affect the community project because that's another reason I'm busy. I started a community project in London called Tuned In, and that's um, we do that from a civic building, public building. Uh, we built a recording studios, but yet because it's a public building, obviously we can't open. So, um, you know, but there you go, you know, but it's, so it, I mean, it's, it's life's not straightforward now, right? Everything is, you know, muddles through. You can't travel by train here, you, you know, so <laughs> I've got to drive everywhere. I used to like the trains, but the trains at the moment, you, there's strikes, you can't, you know, 
it's not good. I don't know how it is there. I know for here in the States, we're having a, a, a work shortage. Not that there isn't work to be to hire people. It's just people just don't want to go back to work. And so there's a, lot, a huge shortage of, of actual labor. That's the same here as mm. well. Uh, big, especially, and, and in France, I hear that as well. You know, um, I think that somebody was telling me there's a quarter of a million jobs in Paris going in the hospitality that are vacant. Um, at 150,000 in London. I mean, I don't know who comes up to those figures, but if you you sense this is a time that you want some building work done or something like that, don't bother. Um, you know, just just you know, don't hire anybody. It's it's funny because at the same time, people are short of money, and you know, um, I guess it's certain kind of jobs. I think a lot of people left, like driving delivery jobs, they left. Um, there's a shortage of cab drivers, so. Yeah. I found it very hard to get taxis in a way I haven't had since the 1970s. You know, you play somewhere like South End, little town to the east of uh, of, of England and uh, in Essex, and it's a busy kind of night spot kind of town. And the gigs at the, the shows at nine o'clock, and it's and it's half eight, and I need a fucking taxi because I'm in the hotel the other side of town. You know, yeah. and. No, no taxis, you know, no Ubers, no taxis. And so someone has to get a car and come and pick me up. And, you know, so you, you, you kind of got to be pretty careful now. So I just realized a couple of days ago, as I was preparing for this, that uh, it's been 45 years since Public Image Limited started. I mean, it would, that seems impossible to, to imagine. But I interviewed John Lydon about, I don't know, like 10 years ago. And, uh, and I asked him a question because, you know, to me, it's like, you know, when the Sex Pistols fall apart and he leaves, I mean, he could have gone in any number of directions and he gets you and he gets Keith Levine. And what he decides to do is not do the Sex Pistols part two. But what he decides to do is instead this incredibly groundbreaking and unusual music that you could easily make the argument. This was just as influential as anything that the Sex Pistols did, and they certainly had more longevity. When you look back at that, those early days of, of Pill, what was your thought going into it? I mean, obviously, you're, you're getting together with a friend of yours who is the most n- notorious guy in the entire country. What, what, was the, what was the feeling and the mood you know, early on back then? Well, I was, it was, obviously, I knew John from before punk started so yeah. we'd been friends before it all happened and so you know i'd obviously seen him get on with the pistols this that and the other and then when he asked me came back from americross i'd seen that the pistols had broken up i hadn't seen him for a while and he he phoned me at home i'd gone i'd left a squat you know like a which is a kind i don't know if you use the same term in america but it's a where you illegally stand in a building or at that time, it was half and a half. It was kind of legal, kind of not, you know. <laughs> and I'd gone back to me mum and dad's council flat, which is like saying, in a projects, under under sufferance, you know, under sufferance. And my, it, my time was wearing out there again. And John called, called me there and said, you want to be in a band? So I was absolutely delighted. I remember I really fancied the job. I, I had no doubts looking back that I couldn't do something with a bass, you know, and I had a very clear intention with the bass. So I don't think any of us had a master plan or real any idea what the music would sound like, really, except obviously the bass was going to be heavy. And I and I had the bass lines. So it was all based on the bass lines and we took it from there. And that first album, obviously, the first single, I think a lot of people were really like enthusiastic because it's like wow this is very palatable you know pop music almost but with a with a different sound so people loved it and we and that that first album though we had some quite extreme things on the album like fodder stomp theme very modal wigged people out i don't think it would now but at the time it really kind of wigged people out um they couldn't get it you know um and then I think, especially with me and Keith Levine, there was a thing of, at that point, without really going into it, maybe he would say different, but I felt that, okay, we've done this 
album, we've made some songs and we've done some left field stuff as well. It's the left field stuff that feels really exciting, the, the more natural stuff. So what instead of, you know, you could have a band and have an album and have an album and slowly progress, or we could just go straight to the end goal and just do the extreme thing, the expressive thing now, which is what we did. And so we end up with stuff like pop tones and careering. And we and, and in a way, it was a shame, you know, I'd enough of it and left. So I'd only done two years with Pill, but it was the star that shines half the, as long, shines twice <laughs> as bright and all that. And he looked back and just think, yeah, it was actually at the time, I was really annoyed with them because I thought they were being lazy and could have got on it. But the older I got, the more I realized that was like the final album of Pill you know, of that period, you know, it was a great album and that's that, you know. Um, so it was very extreme. I don't think any of us kind of, you know, there was never a meeting where, okay, we, we sit down and discuss, we must make stuff that's expressive and this and that. We wouldn't have, I don't think we'd have been able to articulate it anyway. It was all gut feeling and intuition, you know. But the great thing for me, I was an amateur. I was a novice. I couldn't even count musically one two three four i could just groove i had a good yeah. sense of time and i had bass lines and i was so lucky that I, for, for, for a novice bass player not to be in a band where you have to follow the chords of the guitarist everything was based around my bass line so i was in a fantastic fortuitous position the thing that always fascinates me about that particular album is the first time i heard it I wasn't sure what to make of it. And it's the kind of album that I think takes more than one listen to really understand it. But once you get it, it's kind of like, it doesn't really let you go. It, it's an hypnotic type of thing. It's not so unlike a lot of the music by the fall. It's like you either, you know, love the fall or you don't. And if you don't, it's because you haven't given it enough time to really dig its claws into you, which is one of the reasons why, you know, here we are 40 some odd years later and st people are still talking about Metal Box being one of the greatest albums ever recorded. And if you are one of those people that, that has been connected to it, it's hard to argue against it because it's it was so unique at the time, and it still sounds great today. I think that's the mark of what really is a, a tremendous piece of art. Yeah, well, well that's right. Um, and I think it resonates with a lot of people, and it's, it's seen as iconic now. I, I think over the years, though, a lot of people cited it talked about it but it was a bit like um uh ulysses by james joyce you know everybody said they'd read it but they probably hadn't really and they certainly hadn't read it all the way through and i think that that was the case with metal box a lot of people would delved in but probably hadn't managed to listen all the way through you know but i think <laughs> but i think but i think increasingly people it's like the i think similar to electric period miles davis albums like Dark Magus, that when I first heard them, I was just, those are, wow, you know, that's just uh, incredible, you know. Um, and obviously it was it was because of Columbia in Japan that those Miles, Electric Miles records came out, at, you know, at all, and we bought them as imports. Um, but they were very, it's very strong meat, isn't it? It's very strong meat, that stuff, and I think public image in its own way, from those days, Metal Box is very, very strong, very expressive. And it's a bit like, it's funny, I always say, like, I came to realise when I studied, I did, did a degree um, for fun, went to, went to university um, in the 90s part-time and learned that fine art, often movements, often precede the musical movements by 30, 40 years. And I think we were part of that as much as any, the abstract expressionist thing. And I think we had a real, you know, like from the expressionists of the early 20th century, we had a lot of that expressionist, those big, broad, ugly brush strokes, you know, but it's very authentic somehow. So I think in terms of art, that's where it's very primal, expressive, uncompromising art, you know. I think that's true, but I think what, what what's also really remarkable is so you just released the metal box rebuilt and dub and uh, you know i listened real carefully to it because i really wanted to see how you were going to you approach this i think if you listen to it you know with an open an open mind what you realize is that there's a beauty of these songs that may not have been 
so obvious the first time around, but be, does become very obvious when you give it a second look. Did you find that to be true, or did you always feel there was a, a certain beauty about that music from the very beginning? Well, how this happens, very organic. So with the Invaders of the Heart, my band, we started putting in a few a few bo- songs from Metal Box over the years again. And I started to, you know, you started to envisage, you know, we did that. I went out in 2012 as well and did did some dub versions of Metal Box. But it was different to this this album. It was more live. I had a trumpet player involved, a really good trumpet player, because I wanted to give it that Milesian kind of aspect, <laughs> a player kind of tribute to him in a way, you know, um, and to start to develop the songs um, in a different way. With this album, it was because I played those songs like Pop Tones, um, Socialist, uh, Fodder Stomp, you know, with, with Public Image and stuff with the band at the last few years. We started putting in string arrangements and stuff. Can I have mashed potato, darling? With it, yeah. I've got the dinner cooking, yeah. Thanks, darling. So I'm a good husband. I've got the dinner on. Um, <laughs> and I, um, we, we, we started bringing string arrangements into, into, into the fray. And so, when you start doing that, you start thinking, well, we've done that. Imagine then if we did this. Imagine if we did that. And the weirdest thing happens. You might be in Coventry or something playing a gig on a wet Wednesday night and you're playing pop tones and funny things happen at gigs. You hear funny harmonics mm. and you'll hear something like, I'm standing thinking I could hear a Koto. And I mean, I played music with Japanese people and Kotos and, but you see, I could hear a Koto, you know, cause the harmonics <laughs> ringing, you know, and so it kind of sticks in your mind that I'd like to do a version of it with, which is what we did you know, um, with, with that new version. And, put like a stripped down Japanese six middle bridge in it and stuff, you know? So, and, and stuff like, um, socialist, you know, do, 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 do. we do it really up tempo. We do it in a drum and bass style, but yet again, sometimes with the harmonics, you're hearing like singers, like there's a, there was this vocal group called the Swingle singers that's a kind of not exactly barbershop quartet but you know you could they would do vocal versions of and so that was one of the things you think if i ever do socialist properly devote time to it i'd like to do these it makes me want to do that so it's different stuff right there um also with um socialist you know you wanted i wanted to add a kind of heavy metal element to it you know with some of the chords and and that's kind of how it came about you know and and, and public image sort of bonus track um i like the spanish language i don't speak spanish very much but in the lockdown i was taking a few teaching myself a little bit and i've always always when i, when I sing public image it always feels very impassioned mm. you know and i just thought it'd be great to do it the way when you're watching a Spanish movie or something, and somebody's making something's passion speech, you know, you know, in Spanish, you never listen to a word I said, you only see me for the clothes I wear, you know, it's yeah. actually like quite Shakespearean or something almost, I don't know. So that was the, there was all the influence. So it was like, so when Matt from Cleopatra said, would you be interested? He was slightly cagey because I think he thought I might say, how dare you? That's an iconic record, you know. But I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go, <laughs> Yeah, actually. And the other funny thing was it was lockdown. I'm working with John Klein and on this, on via Zoom, because we still kept the community thing going remotely. And John Klein is the punk, he's the post-punk guitarist he's the he's the expert on all the production of those records right. he's a very smart guy a great guitarist and he's the he's your guy for a scratchy guitar so it's funny i'm asked to do this and i'm working remotely with the best person in the fucking world you could do it with <laughs> so that's how that happened you know here in the states i don't think dub has ever really connected the way it certainly has in the uk and it's something that's been a part of the, the musical landscape for a long long time but you know for anyone who would say well you know why would you go ahead and try to redo a, a perfect record this kind of thing's been done in the uk forever 
this is, I mean, this is not really a new idea. It, I mean, the interpretation of this, of the music is different, but this is the kind of thing that's been going on in the UK for a long, long time. That's right. I mean, I think I've become an exponent of it. Of course, you have got in America, Bill Leswell, who's a big exponent yeah. of it. And, you know, I, I, obviously, I think throughout America, but especially on the East Coast and, and West Coast and probably down in Atlanta and up in, and, and also over the border in Canada, you have got some real dub fans and little groups of people that are into this. But, yeah, I, I'm somebody who really did take this approach and use it with Chinese music, Japanese music, Moroccan music, you know, put these dub things and because it's a wonderful stripped down setting to place melodic jewels within, you know, you take the old, especially the Chinese stuff, you're dealing with melodies or Japanese stuff, code, old farming, agricultural songs that people would sing as they told the fields and they're probably like a thousand years old or, you know, it's a variation of them that's come through. And so there's something very universal about dub, you know, that you could set any kind. It's a setting you can put any kind of jewel into and it works. I got to ask you, did you get a chance to see the, uh, the sex pistols miniseries or did you uh, say, no, nah, kind of, yes, uh, I did. You did. Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> what did so you, what did I, you think? I, I, I really loved it. There's some people could feel hard done by, you know, felt a little bit sorry for Glenn. He wasn't quite that bad, you know, so Glenn, <laughs> Glenn Matlock. Um, although he did appear, I'm friends with him now, you know, he did, was, did a come across maybe slightly taciturn in those days, but it wasn't as bad as that. Um, and he was the best musician in it, I think, at that time. And there's a few people that don't feature that you that probably should have done. There were people around that shop in those early days that should have featured but didn't. And I can imagine those people having the humps could could be in types of a little bit hard done by. So fair enough, I get that. But of course, it's a dramatization written from the perspective of Steve Jones, and I thought it was fantastic. You know, um, um, the first three I really enjoyed. I actually loved it, and I I thought it was a bit slapstick. I thought it conveyed the spirit of the time really well. It's funny. When Sid started taking smack in the series, my reaction was exactly the same as when Sid took smack with Nancy in real life. It's like, right, this is now a drag. This is hard. To, this is a hard watch now. And so I found the last two of the series a bit difficult. But the first three, especially the first one, was like, wow, this is great. <laughs> They've really somehow captured the mood of the 70s, the, 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 the delinquency. Of, of some of us, you know, was really captured. I thought that was fantastic. So I liked it, you know. I know it upset a lot of people. And I've got mates who absolutely hated it and just felt that the um, the dialogue was, you know, ridiculous and all that. But I liked it. And it's funny. I was at a, I was at a viewing with Dennis Morris, my mate, the photographer, for Sid. It was like a load yeah. of Sid photos. Some kid, come, geezer comes up, young geezer, and says, oh, hello, mate. You know, and I'm like, hello. And he said, I, I was in this Pistols thing. It was it was the guy that played Johnny Johnny Lydon. And it was like, wow. And I said, you were fantastic. He was really, I said, listen, you were fantastic. Because I thought he really got John the best ever in, 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 I've ever seen as someone kind of, you know, capturing him. And uh, the same for the guy that played McLaren, I thought was really, really, uh, really good. good. So, I, yeah, I liked it. I enjoyed it, yeah. you know, the first three. Yeah. The mythology behind Sid, I think, is really a, a very, very sad story. I mean, on one hand, he's he's gained this iconic status, but the reality is he was a like an innocent guy that was sorely equipped for what he was thrust into. Not the kind of guy that really you, you should have had anything to do with a band or anything to do with fame. And really, you came from a, a, a background where, you know, this was only going to really end one way it's really just a tragic you know story and yet we raised this guy up like he was something out of like a like a fantasy well i did a radio documentary for the bbc on sid and uh, uh, because of what you're talking about i wanted to convey a different aspect to him other than this iconic kind of cardboard cut out parody figure so i happen to know for instance when sid was kicked out of his house by his mum 
he went and stayed with a dear friend of mine, Terry Penton. Now, Terry's a guy that I've gone to football with for years. I didn't even know Terry knew him. It was all so mixed up back then. I didn't even know Terry, but it turned out Terry sort of knew him. So it was a great radio documentary because I got a lot. When he, he was, he lived in the West End of London, which is like living in Midtown Manhattan. It's a strange place to kind of live. So he lived in Covent Garden and he went to school in Piccadilly, which is like going to school off Broadway, you know, to junior school. It's kind of like, you know, kind of odd looking back. Um, London, obviously, a different place then. The mum then took him to Ibiza. And I think it was a bit of a druggy place in those days, you know, a bit mm-hmm. of a dropout, heavy kind of place. So she went there and she come back. She lived in Tunbridge Wells. There's another, I've just got to tell you, a guy was doing a big news magazine article on Sid and he met me at Tunbridge Wells, which is very middle England. It's a very nice little town in Kent. So he come to do this interview and I said to him, what a place you've chosen to do an interview on Sid. You couldn't find anywhere more removed from Sid Vicious. <laughs> he said, he said, well, you're wrong there, actually. He, he lived over there, sort of over the strips. I thought, what the fuck? I didn't even know. <laughs> so he come back there and then he moved to Bristol. And then he moved to London, to the east end of London, where I come from. And he had a bit of a, an accent like that. So a lot of the fellas I knew that, Two of my mates took him under their wing, and they—that's they, where they. I remember Sid talking just a little bit like that, so they take the Mickey out of him because he had a Bristolian accent, which is a bit like this. It's a bit like a country boy draw, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like the Southern States of America or some shit, you know. It's that kind of draw <laughs> country person's way of speaking, and so they looked after him, and he was a big Bowie fan. So it was wonderful because I was able to document him this funny kid from a dysfunctional background, you know, all that stuff and capture. These are real old style Londoners. I was able to capture all this stuff before it goes. It was a great documentary. If I I say so myself (laughs) and, um, you know, I even had radio. I got John Savage, the England's dreaming writer kindly gave me access to his archive. And I had an interview there that he'd done with Sid's mum. And she's saying about how she kicked him out the house and, you know, and he said, but mum, where I go? I said, I don't care. Just sling your hook, you know. And so his mum was on drugs. Um, he ended up on drugs. He yeah. was dis- he didn't have a, he didn't have a chance really. And I, I knew Sid, you know, I had, when John went off to being a pistols, I was left with Sid at like Kingsway college, which is a kind of a, College, it's a little bit of a school college for kids who dropped out and missed their school education. Mm-hmm. It was you had a few, it had that aspect to it, and so I was left with Sid, and you know he was he was a very damaged boy. So uh, he, he took me. He had a psychiatrist at that time. It wasn't just a counsellor. He was seeing a psychiatrist. So he'd obviously had a social worker, and in those days you'd probably get more support than you would now. So he asked me to to go with him to see his psychiatrist. He didn't have any girlfriend at that point or anything. I had a girlfriend at the time. He never dealt Randy. Was a little bit socially um, awkward, actually. You know, he was quite a funny guy, but had a very sort of downside, a very dark side. But anyway, he said, "Come and see the psychiatrist because I've told the psychiatrist I want to kill myself. I have nothing to live for." Because he knows you're my friend, he wants you to help to convince me that I do have something to live for. So I went to see the psychiatrist. He wasn't called Sid at the time. I wasn't called Char Wobble. We were both John. Right. So the psychiatrist said, well, John, he said to me, nice to meet you. John's told me all about you. I know that you got a girlfriend, you play football, you go to football, um, that you, you, you like pictures and you've got this life. And... I just would like to see you maybe pull John Beverly Sid into this a little bit more and maybe help him. And I think he was asking me to be a mentor, even though Sid was older than me, where you could teach him life's worth living. And Mm. there's because he's talking about killing himself and he says his life isn't worth living. So obviously me and Sid had sorted this out. I say, actually, I don't know if he has got anything to live for. It might be the best thing for him. And of course, this poor psychiatrist guy, 
But it's completely like mouth agog, you know, completely couldn't believe it, you know. And I said it might be. And Sid was like, see, see, I, see, I told you, <laughs> even my friend thinks I'm useless, you know. And so it was a bit of a horrible thing to do. <laughs> the guy was very upset and we left there and we went outside and we both were joke, jumping up and down and laughing because it's a joke. But I realized afterwards, many a true word said he jest. That's an amazing story, but it kind of shows that he really was a very damaged young man and that it, it, it's a shame that his life ended the way it did. Yeah, it was, it, it was, it wasn't ever going to go any other way. He talked about being dead before he was 21 and um, yeah, he, he, it's how it was, yeah. you know. So I did as much research as I could possibly jam in knowing I was going to talk to you and, and uh, you know, look at some of the things that you had done. One of the things that, that really leaped out to me was with, with uh, Martin Atkins, who, who I'm going to be talking to uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the the damage manual. Uh, I like Martin. He's a friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, to talking to him because you know one he's just started up this museum in Chicago, the post punk and industrial music museum, and uh, and it, the moment I found out that I could get a T-shirt by becoming a member, I like of course I was going to send a check. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, <laughs> I'll yeah, always yeah. take a T-shirt, but uh, I I've been a, I've been a fan of his for a, a real real long time, not just not just in pill, but you know, when he played with the, you know, killing joke and, and, and everything what you've played with that guy, he's such a, maybe an under appreciated talent as a drummer, just to, he's just a beast of a, of a player. Well, when we done damage manual, we hadn't played for ages, I think before that, but was completely on it. Whereas normally it takes people a little while to get their chops back. And he's very accurate drummer. Has he, uh, has he hit you up to send him stuff for his museum? No, not yet, but we do we do talk from time to time. I like Martin, you know. It was really great he was there. As I was I went to America and when I was just it was brewing up for me just to leave Pill. I was so annoyed with them that at least he was somebody I could have a cup of tea with, yeah. you know, and all that have a or back then have a beer with as well, you know. Um well I was getting so pissed off with the other two that Martin, it was nice Martin was there towards the end. I mean, I've done his audition for Pill, actually. It was just me and him in the room. You yeah. Know. When I, I didn't want to ask you this question, you know, to start things off, I wanted to kind of ease you into this question. Cause I don't know. I don't really know where things stand with you and with, uh, with John Lydon. What, what is your relationship with him now? I know there's been problems, you know, over the years, but as of right now, where are you guys at? Oh, we don't really have a relation, you know, a relationship, but I, I don't, I, I know that he doesn't really bear me any, any ill will really. And I don't, very many ill will, too old for all that. Um, you know, I owe if, if I hadn't known him, I probably wouldn't have started playing music, you know, in the way I have. So it's all good. You know, we had our differences, and I've been very honest about the differences I've had with him. And I was one person who wasn't ever going to beat about the bush. You know, I'm going to say it how it is because remember, we were friends before. So I'm not somebody who's come on and I've got a relationship with him like he's something special, right? He's yeah. a fucking guy that I know. Yeah, that's it. So yeah. it's like a guy from your, your hometown or something, you, you know, literally. So I know you and you know me. I know where you're coming from and vice fucking versa. So there's no airs and graces involved. So if you act in a way I think's fucking wrong, I'll fucking tell you. Yeah. You know, um, that's it. So... You know, and Harry behaved back then, I think, was appalling, you know. But we're all young, it is what it is, um, you know. And, uh, you know, it, as he got me started in the game. So, all good. I've got no ill will to him or anything, you know. I think politically, he's a very, very different beast to me. Yeah. You know, I, you know. so I, I'm, I'm a left-to-centre guy, you know. Um, I'm, not, I'm not particularly woke, I don't think. Um, but I'm left of centre and, uh, you know, and all that. And I don't think he is, but that's it. So I don't, I don't talk to him. I doubt, I doubt we'd ever communicate again. I wouldn't think. So that's how it is. And that's why I said, I, I wanted to wait towards the end before I hit you. With that. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm absolutely not. It's, it's, everyone knows it's not something I'm at all, um, touchy about. I, I, absolutely not. I'm not touchy in the slightest about that with, with John, you know, at all. You know, like uh, 64 now, he must be 
72. No, I'm joking. He must be like 60, <laughs> 67 or 68 or something. We're all too old for for all that. So, no, I don't have any any ill, Ill, Ill will. You know? I, I always thought it was funny. You know, here's a guy when he was young was like public enemy number one. And then like 20 years later, he's like a, a national treasure. What a turnaround for that guy. Yeah, you know, I mean, it is what it was. I mean, between the years 76, 75, I think you could say, really, yeah. actually, when it really, 75 through to about 1981, it was really what an amazing person, you know. Uh, the lyrics with from Metal Box, you know, fantastic. And he had such a persona. You know, such a strong persona. wasn't always wasn't always a nice person. He always had that nasty edge to him. To be fair, but you know, he he, he did some great stuff, and you know, it was all good. I think since then he did uh, the album that he did with Laswell was good. Mm -hmm. I think it's it, you know, Bill was smart. He got other alpha male players. You know, with um, you know, big big CVs. You know that you know. That's the only thing you could do. If you're not going to have a, an organic band around him, you put a group like that, and that worked very well, I thought. But I don't think he's, for, for me, and I don't mean it disrespectfully, I don't think he's done anything since then that would resonate with me at all. So yeah. we don't have a, we wouldn't have a musical relationship. I think he's a bit of a kind of rock and roller at heart, really. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's fine. You know, I mean, whatever. You know, as I say, you know, I left Pill, and you have to, I, and I kind of, yet again, I had to remember all this recently. I left Public Image, and within weeks, I'm working with the boys from Can. Right. You know, I mean, <laughs> so it was fantastic. And then Youth always says, you know, from Kidding Joke, he said, yeah, you know, I heard you left Pill. He's working with Connie Plank in Germany. And he said, suddenly, I see you're working with Holger. When we, I met, I was over there at the time they were working with Connie. So I couldn't believe it, you know. And then I went to work with Francois Kavalkian, make Snake Charmer. And so this thing with Pill was the beginning for me, you know. When I screwed up, that was not down to Pill. I screwed up with booze and all that and drugs in the mid to late, basically by 86. So quite quick, the demise come quite quickly. I started to become a raging asshole, asshole, as you'd say in America, <laughs> by about, you know, 1984, I was starting to become intermittently a raging asshole. And, um, you know, by 86, I got sober, yeah. you know, and then started, you know, and even, even in that two years, I was making music. So that opened up a thing for me, you know, I was fascinated with music and just not long after I left Pilt, I re I formed the Invaders of the Heart. So I had that idea of fusion music. So Pill was a fantastic beginning for me, you know, and going back, redoing Metal Box really re-squared the kind of circle, you know. So, yeah, I don't have any, don't, I really don't have any bitterness to anyone. I mean, why would I? Well, you you know, I mean, you've had know. a you've had an amazing career. I mean, you truly have. And 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 the stuff you're doing now, the, you know, Jaw Wobble and, and and family with the the Gwenyan album is fantastic. And and the fact that you're still with the Invaders of the Heart and 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 on the road and traveling with it, it's it's you know, it's a real pleasure to to talk to you about this stuff because I've been a, a fan for a long time. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've just I I still love it. Um, I find it tiring. You know, when we do three or four on this, because we play for two and a half hours. Wow. You know, we just get up and we just play through, you know, and it's a good show. And um, I must admit, three on the spin, you know, four is like, wow, I'm feeling this. You know, the next day I'm like, oh, you know, you feel like you've, <laughs> you know, you've, you've run a marathon or something, you know, because um, it's quite an energetic show, actually, you know. So, but I still love it. So I still really, I'm really looking, I'm really, we're playing Manchester on Thursday. I'm very excited about that, you know. Um, so it's almost like a ho I'm a Londoner, but I live in the Northwest a lot of the time now. I'm yeah. still in London a lot still. So London's a hometown, but Manchester's like my hometown gig for me as well, you know. Well, and Liverpool, because I've got in-laws there. So I'm connected with all these places and, you know, I'm looking forward to Thursday night, you know. Yeah. And hopefully you'll come to the States at some point too. I don't know if that, you've got plans for that. Hey, it's till any promoter is interested, just get in contact, you know. I've got an agent. I've got an agent out there, Dave Vichetti, who's a great guy. Um, 
and it's just a case of making an offer. The thing that makes it difficult now is all the costs with visas going to America. You know, so the last time I went, you know, we got three year visas, but it, the upfront costs were probably twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars. That's before you wow. spend money on hotels or flights. So mm-hmm. when you're working at that lower level, and we're not doing stadiums. You, you you have to have a festival or two that you get on the bill, and then you can then float the rest of the tour off the festival. But I love the states, you know. I mean, American literature was the literature I loved the most as a kid. So Stephen King over the years, you know, all these kind of you know, you know, Canary Row, you know, you know, all these all these great American literature. And uh, last exit to Brooklyn and everything. So, you know, in fact, I'm making an album at the moment for Cleopatra. And it, to me, it's very inspired by a lot of American, a lot of the American literature. Oh, really? That, um, yeah. So I'm making quite an American album. I, I, For me, it's got a big American feel, feel to it, the album. When, when do you think, think that's going to come out? I think we're looking at spring next year. The book, The book's being republished as well. So it's coming out in favor and favor. That's coming out at the end of next year as well. Good, because so. because I, I tried to get a <laughs> I tried to get a copy. It's it, it impossible. Was, it's completely gone now. Yeah. Well, I, I, the one copy I saw on Amazon was one hundred and seventy dollars. So I thought, okay, maybe maybe I'll wait for his next book. Maybe not. Maybe wait. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. One hundred and seventy is a lot of money. Yeah. 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 John, it's great to talk to you. I appreciate the time today, and 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 thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mike. You have a great day. Thanks, you too. Mike. The name of the album from Ja Wobble and family is called Gwen Yin. It's a really interesting record. Also, check out Metal Box Rebuilt in Dub. That's excellent as well. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, like it, review it, share it, tell all your friends about it. You can email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.